Good morning. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, and we will be looking at verses 9 to 13. Let's hear the Word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us come to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have sent your, sent your son Jesus, the one who gave his life for sinners. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus paid it all and we can now walk in faith, trusting in him. And we pray that, Lord, that you would give me now grace to speak this glorious truth. I pray that, Lord, that whatever comes from my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. And I also pray that, Lord, that we would have the ears to hear your voice alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, as we look at this text, let me give you a bit of context. The book of Matthew was written by the very same Matthew we will look at in this text. And this passage comes in the middle of a long stretch in the accounts of Jesus healing people. Before our passage, he cleanses a leper. He heals a centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, casts out demons, several demons. And immediately before our passage, he heals a paralytic, which Luke tells us in his gospel that his friends lowered him down through the roof. And after the passage, he goes on healing right through the end of chapter 9. So Matthew is spotlighting Jesus' miracles because they testify to his unique identity as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the Christ whom God sent to save sinners. So in our text, in this first scene, we see Jesus calling the tax collector, Matthew, to be his disciple. And in the second scene, Jesus has dinner with more tax collectors and sinners in someone's house. Luke and Mark tell us it is, in fact, Matthew's house. So in this passage, we see a few parts that I would like to focus on. One, we see Jesus' calling. Je Jesus is calling sin, uh, Matthew. And then we also see that Jesus has a company. He attends a dinner. So the company of Jesus. Thirdly, we will see a complaint of the Pharisees. And then finally, we see a compassion of Jesus. Four points. The calling of Jesus, the company of, uh, a company of uh, tax collectors and unbelievers, and a complaint of the Pharisees, 
and the compassion of Jesus. And this whole section revolves around Jesus' interaction with tax collectors and sinners. So in the first part, we see Jesus calls a man named Matthew. And moreover, this man was who? He was a tax collector. In verse 10, Jesus was not at a, at a dinner. He was at this dinner spending time with tax collectors and sinners. In verse 11, the question the religious readers ask is that, why is Jesus eating dinner? No, but why is Jesus eating dinner with tax collectors and sinners? And then when Jesus answers their question himself, in verses 12 to 13, he ends with this answer. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So by including this story, Matthew wants to highlight one main truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. That is what Matthew wants us to learn today. Jesus is the friend of sinners and that truth changes everything. It is easy to forget, reading the gospel according to Matthew, that Matthew has woven his own story into the fabric of this gospel. Now you know that most people like to jazz it up a little bit when they get to tell their own story. They like to put themselves at the center stage. But not Matthew. Matthew's story is simple and sincere and precise. If anything, he emphasizes his own sin and need more. Matthew aims to exalt Jesus Christ, to magnify God's grace in Christ, and to draw sinners like himself to Jesus. So in verses 1 to 8 of this chapter, we see the story of a crippled man, and then in verses 9 to 13, we, story of, we see the story of men who are crippled in their soul. So when we first see Matthew, he's described as sitting at the tax office. For Matthew himself is a tax collector. And anyone who collects taxes during those days is not popular, and I, don't, and I think even these days. No matter what country they live in, they are never popular. And Matthew, this man who became a follower of Jesus Christ, was no exception. Taxmen in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ were seen as traitors. Why? Because as Jews, they were effectively working for the Gentiles, to a Roman overlord. And so they were traitors to the nation. But also, as they are still in some parts of the world, they were also corrupt. The way the system worked was that you could form a system of line that will help you fill up your own pockets. So they paid some to the Romans, and whatever rest they collected, they would keep it for themselves. So they were corrupt, but they were also seen particularly by the Pharisees as those who are unclean. Why? They were ceremonially unclean because they had all these dealings with the Gentiles. And therefore, they were cast out, rejects. They had no place in Jewish society. And they had no place then in the kingdom of God. When Jesus called Matthew to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, when Jesus sat down and had a meal with Matthew's friends, this was already a strange thing that was happening. This would have been clearly evident to the readers during those days. Matthew was a betrayer of his nation and a robber of his own people, one author says Matthew was socially, politically, religiously an outcast. 
no self-respecting person wanted much to do with a man like Matthew. And to this man, Jesus gives a call. That's what we will look at, a call from Jesus. This will be our first point. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. We see here the forgiving grace of Jesus and his saving power here. There is a sovereign act of Jesus by the way he calls this tax collector. And the sovereignty is furthermore highlighted by the brevity of this text. So how this call goes? Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's it. As such brief call as it seems. But this is a call to faith. What we see here is a man who was a traitor, who exploited his own people for his own gain. And Jesus goes to such a man and says to him, follow me. And he follows him. Here we see the care of Jesus towards this individual. He saw and pursued Matthew and called him to come and follow him. Immediately, as seen in this verse, a hardened member of the worst class of sinners rose and followed him. Now, Jesus is not calling Matthew to a specific religious movement here. He is calling Matthew to follow a person. Follow me, he says. He was calling him to follow Jesus himself. So following Jesus certainly means accepting his teaching and living according to his will as he has taught. But it means much more than that. We are not be being called to follow and Matthew was not being called to an impersonal code of conduct. Just a particular philosophy of life. But he was called to be devoted to a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The person who embodied and perfectly lived out what he talked about. But much more than that, Jesus was the perfect son of God, as would be revealed through his ministry. We are called to follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, Jesus' calling of Matthew provides a classic doctrine of what theologians call Christ's effectual call. The effectual call of the gospel. A distinction must be made between a general call and an effectual call here. The general call is that that I give from my mouth. Or each week, the preacher who stands here gives to us. Or even when you share the gospel, whenever you proclaim the forgiveness in Jesus' name and through his blood, that is when you give a call. And this, is, this call is to sincerely invite sinners generally to come to Jesus and be forgiven. But there is a problem with the general call. Namely, it cannot succeed because a sinner in and of himself is not able to come to Jesus on his own. So Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this call that we see here is a call, an effectual call, given by Jesus Christ in full authority and 
power. So in their natural state, men and women are not inclined to listen to the gospel. They are not willing. They are not able to believe and be saved. When Jesus speaks of the Father drawing them, that's a reference to the effectual calling. And here is what happened in this case of Matthew. The call goes from Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit and by the power of God, he changes the sinner's heart. And he sovereignly makes the call effectual, and the sinner rises in faith and in salvation. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called. This refers to the kind of calling that leads to salvation. It is simply not true for everyone who has heard the gospel, the general gospel, that all things will work together for their good. So friends, what does this effective call have to do with us? I mean, does it really matter? Well, I think when we know that God is the one who has called us and that, that he is the one who tugged our hearts through the Holy Spirit and we understand that it is not uh, the one who shared the gospel, it is not based on that person, it is not on our own wisdom and the good decision making that did the work. That it is God himself who despite our unloveliness, despite our uncleanness, chose to present you and me to his son as his bride. When we know that, we can do, what can we do other than fall before our God and worship him? Guys, we were the tax collectors. We are the tax collectors loving the things of the world. Loving, living for ourselves, and then yet greedy and ugly as we are. But Christ loved us, and he called us, and he chose us. So the man who was so willing to sell out his countrymen for his own gain, and he, he hears this call of Jesus, he's the kind of person, as Paul describes, everyone who is outside of Christ in unbelief. Paul says that they are darkened in their understanding. That was Matthew's state. And separated from the life of God because of the hardening of their hearts. Now this point, now the, the point is if Matthew is going to be saved, only Jesus could save him. And Jesus would have to supply all the power in doing so. So Matthew rose and he followed him. This meant to Matthew that he would no longer live for himself. Doing what he wanted to do. Instead, he handed over himself entirely to Jesus. We see Matthew's faith here. His faith is seen not only in the swiftness of his response, but his faith is seen in the costliness of it. This was a costly decision for him from a financial point of view. This means the same for you and me. To live in this way is to follow him and to live in a way that he calls us to live. And to do that, what he says for us, we do that. And to follow him where he leads. We entrust our entire selves to him. We say, Jesus, I lean on you. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So verse 9 tells us that Matthew just rose and followed Jesus. Luke's gospel adds to this and says that he rose and followed Jesus, leaving everything. That is what the call to follow Jesus entails. A call to follow Jesus is to give his entire life to him. I trust my life to you. I am handing over my life to you. Do with me whatever you please. It was like this. Just imagine you're at your workplace and you're busy working, thinking about many things. And then suddenly Jesus comes and he tells, follow me. You drop everything and you just get up and walk. Matthew was making a lot of money doing what he was doing. As if he were to walk away from that, there would have been 1,000 people more ready to take up that job. But he nevertheless did and should be the same for us. If you are a follower of Christ, is this the way that you are seeking to follow him? Have you left everything, so to speak? Are you trusting in Jesus in every area of your life? For most of us, that won't mean leaving a particular job or moving to another particular place. For most of us, it would mean doing whatever God has called us to do, but doing it in a way to please him, to honor him. It is now because of he loves me, I'm going to love him and live for him. And for some of us, it would mean making certain decisive decisions in our lives. Perhaps you are here today and you are not a Christian. You are not a follower of Christ. In fact, even the thought of following someone who lived 2,000 years ago might seem a bit crazy to you. If you are here visiting and are not following Jesus, we would love to share with you that we can make a compelling case to you that following Jesus is the most worthy thing that you can do. We would love to talk more about that. So please come and talk to me after the service or even talk to one of our members and we'd be happy to spend some time with you talking about these things. And if you're even shy in talking, there, are, there is a book table and you can pick up a book called Who is Jesus? Take it with you and read for yourself and understand who Jesus is. Friends, Matthew heard the call of the sovereign love of his Savior to follow him. Matthew stood up and left at the moment, leaving behind everything associated with his sinful life and habits. And he follows after Jesus. As far as we know, this is Matthew's last time to set foot in a tax office. This is the last time Matthew will ever take coins on behalf of the Romans. In world's terms, Matthew seems to have lost a great deal. Yes, he has. If we are honest, he did, but, but he has gained so much more. For he has gained God in Christ. Matthew believed that Jesus was worthy to be followed, the great treasure of his life. And Jesus was merciful to a man who was in everyone's estimation a sinner, a reject. And so from this call of Christ that we see that he gives to Matthew and his encounter with him, we now see Jesus' encounter with a group of sinners. 
the company with Christ. Let's look at verse 10. This would be our second point. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew both celebrates and spreads the blessing that he has received here. So he not only is following, but he's now prepared this feast and he's invited his friends. The first Matthew does after becoming the follower of Jesus Christ is set forth a feast for his friends with Christ himself as the guest of honor. Now what kind of friends does a tax collector have? You know the phrase, right? Birds of the same feather flock together. What kind of friends does a tax collector have? Well, tax collectors and other known sinners. Other people with a reputation for not being right with God. Other socially, politically, and religious outcasts. Matthew's friends are just like him. And that is not surprising. What is surprising is that many of Matthew's tax collector friends come for dinner and they sit down with Jesus and his disciples. Sitting down is not so important, but sitting down and eating with somebody is to enter into an intimate fellowship with them. You're basically saying you belong with us and we belong with you. And what you got in Matthew's home was probably earned with his ill-gotten gain. With food which the people in Capernaum couldn't begin to afford. And in a group of Capernaum scum of the earth, we see Jesus, the righteous one. And they are enjoying a fellowship together. And from this group, Matthew was saved. He was called to follow Jesus from a sinful life. And this was probably Matthew's confidence in hosting this feast. If Jesus could save a sinner like me, he could save others as sinners like me. If Jesus could see with me, see with mercy towards me, if he will call Matthew, if he will call me from my sinful life, then he can call these other friends of mine. So Matthew is encouraged to think that no one is beyond the mercy of God. Now friends, has your salvation had that effect on you? Have you regularly tried to celebrate the grace of God toward you and to see that blessing be spread? Does your salvation make you confident that other people can be saved? That other sinners are not beyond the mercy of God? And if your spirit and attitude as such, people would say, I want to know the God that this man follows. That woman knows. Their love now gives a confidence that God would receive me. That God would bless me. Brothers and sisters, if we are true believers, joy in salvation ought to flow out from us. Confidence in the God who saves out to mark our lives and words. And our great design would be to serve Christ and to spread the good news as we learn about Jesus Christ. Sometimes you might feel there is nothing much I can do. Well, at least you can spread a feast and you can call your friends and you can say, I want you to meet Jesus and these are my friends. They would be happy to talk to you. You can get a friend or a pastor, someone who is more mature, and invite them so that they can engage your friend. Speak to people who can tell you more about Jesus. But the experience of salvation should give you the confidence in knowing that God is able to save any sinner. 
It was a strange company with Christ here, we see. Tax collectors and sinners. People who are marked out as deserving less than nothing. And here they are, sitting together, down together with Jesus, the righteous one. So what happens next? There is a complaint against Jesus Christ. And it comes from the Pharisees. It is recorded in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Can you hear, hear their accusation and sneer in their question? Can you hear their angry distress? Who are these Pharisees? Well, they are the highly religious and self-righteous men of Capernaum. And, and when they see Jesus having this fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, they are disgusted. They are appalled. This is guilt by association. And it works two ways. First of all, if Jesus is, is with that kind of people, that he himself clearly is part of a bad crowd. He is going to be tainted with sin. He thinks of himself as righteous, but look who he is with. And by extension, he must be a sinner also. Secondly, they also can think he doesn't care much about sin. If he is sitting with them, he is eating and drinking with them, then he is saying it doesn't matter if you are a tax collector or a sinner. Being a sinner is of no importance. We are the righteous people, the Pharisees thought. We keep these people at distance. But Jesus is guilty because of his association. The Pharisees see themselves as right with God. And you should make sure that the tax collectors are the sinners and they are the unclean. And so they accuse Jesus through his disciples. Why does your Lord drink with people like this? Friends, there is a danger that God's people can start to think like this. We might dress it up a little bit more, but it is all too easy for us to think that we are better than others in any absolute sense. But not just God's people. This, can, this also happens even in the outside world. The self, there is a sense of self-righteousness across the board. You meet people who have, no, who have no thought of God and no desire for God, but are persuaded, in effect, that they are com committing a better category of sin than other people. You see that all the time. Have you heard of this phrase, someone has to dirty their hands? And it's sometimes used in cases when someone breaks the law to bring about justice, and the whole society is silent or agrees with the execution of such justice. Killing evil with evil. It is also the case with some sins we tolerate and some we cannot stand. It is often dependent on the person and his worldview, world but not dependent on God. It is often like the Pharisees, we all think of ourselves as that we are the ones who are so good. But people like this are so foul. The tax collectors and sinners, that's what they think. This can creep even into the attitude of us here as a church. As we begin this new year, let us be aware of the sin of thinking highly of ourselves. Particularly even as we prepare to celebrate our 10-year anniversary as Grace Church. May we not forget, we are sinners saved by grace alone. 
and that there are many ways, there are many more ways that we as individuals can still grow in grace, still grow in love for our Savior. And let's still remember that we can still grow as a church so that we can be a salt and light to the people here in Sharjah. I, I'm, I, I, I see that we love our, our brothers and sisters in our congregation. And I'm very much encouraged by that. And we, we enjoy discipling one another, speaking truth in love towards one another. But I also think we can be much more loving towards the outsiders. Those who walk in, intentionally talking to them, pursuing them, talking to your neighbors, your colleagues about Jesus and talking to them about his mercy and his grace. May God give us grace to live like that. Friends, we need to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We need to make sure that we don't begin to think in any way like this. The, ph the Pharisees here are not subtle, and they're probably not trying to be. They're trying to assault Christ in the eyes of his disciples. What are you doing following around with one who eats and drinks with the scum of Capernaum? But let us see the compassion of Christ now. This is in response to their complaint. In verse 12, But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I deserve, I deserve mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, in effect, that this is the whole point. The Pharisees, what is he doing with sinners? That's what they say. And the Lord Jesus says, where else would you expect me to be? I am a doctor among my patients. Jesus is making a simple and obvious statement. It is pretty simple here. People who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick, they do. But at the same time, this is a stunning rebuke to the Pharisees. The supposed leaders of these people, they think that they are so holy and religious, but they would make very terrible doctors. They have no compassion for the sinful, sick souls among them the ones who truly need help. They are like the doctors who don't want to care for the patients because they don't want to get sick. The Pharisees only saw themselves as judges. Jesus saw himself as a healer, offering the remedy for the, for the contagion of the sin problem. Jesus points out that the doctor who does not meet the problem of the sick is worthless, which is why Jesus starts out in the company of tax collectors and sinners, and so by drawing them through faith, he might guard them against the wrath of God to come. So he comes with authority proclaiming, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe. Those days, it was not like you could come and make an appointment and go and see a doctor. The doctor comes to the place of those who are sick. And Jesus is using this illustration and says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick, that's who they need. And then in verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I deserve mercy and not sacrifice. 
You see, the Pharisees, in one sense, are not wrong to see it as a conti- uh, the, the actions of these tax collectors and the sinners are contagious. It is a crippling disease. Sometimes in the Bible, crippling and ten- contagious diseases are used to represent sin. That is what sin is like. It does taint us. It does kill us. It does destroy us. It does wreck our souls. Sin is a horrible thing. But the problem is not with the diagnosis of the Pharisees, but the problem is the response that they have towards sinners. Because Christ's response is the response of a divine doctor. It is a godly response. Mercy goes to heal those who are sick. And that is the point of Christ's illustration. Well people, healthy people don't need a doctor, but the sick one does. And he says to the Pharisees, go and learn something. This must have enraged the Pharisees. I'm a teacher in Israel. I know my Bible inside out. And Jesus says, go and learn what it says in Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. God says, I desire, desire, desire mercy and not sacrifice. We heard Hosea 6 read for us in our scripture reading this morning. We saw it was written, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy here means a kind, loving heart towards God. That's what God desires, a steadfast love. He says, not just sacrifices, but a loving heart behind those sacrifices. This is not new. God is always behind the heart, behind the sacrifice. What is the Lord saying to these self-righteous, outwardly righteous people? He tells them that religious performance without any spiritual faith fueled with love is useless. I repeat that. He tells them that religious performance without any spiritual faith-fueled love is useless. Their outward reputation doesn't matter. However much they profess their likeness to and closeness with God, if they can have all the outward forms of religion but no mercy towards sinners and no compassion for the lost, then they have missed the whole point. And they do not know their God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The sacrifice here is talking about all the external aspects of the religion, but not having the heart of God, which is mercy and compassion towards sinners. Friend, this ought to be a probing reminder to us. Righteousness and holiness should never make us draw back and turn our backs from showing mercy and compassion to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It should rather open our hearts and our hands to serve them, love them, and even lay down our lives for our friends, just as how Jesus did. Are we like people who are always trying not to get ourselves dirty? One other says, are we like these people who try to walk in a cow field where you're trying to avoid the uh, spots where the cow has uh, put its manure. We don't have to be like that. Friends, the sad part, just like these Pharisees, is that we often think we are not sinners, but others are. And if I avoid, I will be fine. 
We somehow think and behave as if we are not sinners. That is why they thought that they were righteous because they were doing certain things. And it is often seen in our marriages. When we are very particularly critical about our spouses more than ourselves. We show tremendous grace to ourselves. But we pinpoint and identify even a small mistake that we find in them. The Pharisees were like that. By keeping their own petty rules, they believe that they were righteous. What is it that you look in your own life today and think that you're okay or think that you're better? What is that subtle form of religious activity that you do that makes you feel that you are somewhat better, better than the other person beside you? Is it because you serve regularly in church gatherings? Or is it because you are upfront leading in some way? Or is it because you are not doing certain things or not doing well in certain areas and then you tend to look down on yourself? Are there certain people whom you think are unlovable? Unreachable co-workers and family members? Are there people who we think are too deep in sin that they can't be saved? People that, that would hurt our reputation if we are seen to be having dinner with them? There are people who are tough to love, no doubt about that. But nothing is impossible with God. There are people who, who it would seem really shocking for us to think if they have come to faith. There's no doubt, doubt about that. But Jesus is still able to save. He calls the sick. He calls the unlovable. And when I start to think in these ways, I'm moving away from the heart of the gospel and I am slowly becoming self-righteous. So we need to be aware of that, friends. Romans says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. So our actions should be fueled by the fact that I am a sinner, and because of Christ's righteousness and his finished work, now I am righteous, and I am able to do righteous work aided by the Spirit of God. Not by my own strength, but by his grace. In the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, it was the scandal that Jesus was fellowshipping with the tax collectors. But in Jesus' eyes, the scandal is that, that they thought that they were righteous. By keeping their own rules, they thought that they were righteous. And Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is me means is that there is no one righteous, no, not one. So by demanding that the sinners be rejected, the Pharisees are condemning themselves before God. Here the tax collectors and Pharisees both are sinners in the sight of God and who need to be saved. Jesus came not to call the righteous because there is none who is truly righteous in the sight of God. Because the standard of righteousness is determined by the rules of the Pharisees or the scribes, but by God himself. So the point that Jesus makes here is that Jesus came to save sinners. It all boils down to the fact that whether or not you see yourself as a sinner or not. And that you greatly need a savior. My number one need is to be forgiven of my sins. And when I truly understand that, the last thing I will do is revile the one who came to forgive my sin. Friends, if any one of you are thinking that you are not doing the so-called sinful things that others do, 
you're better because you attend church regularly or something else. And if you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of grace, then you're lost. In Luke's gospel, a tax collector called out to God, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There is no sin that he cannot forgive and no sin that will not open the gate of our Lord's great mercy towards you. No sense of shame and unworthiness should keep you from turning to him. Because Jesus, this Jesus, who has the authority over sickness, death, and all creation, has the authority and the ability to show tremendous mercy to you and forgive you of your sins. Friends, our God delights in mercy. He delights in doing good to those who are in need. For the needy, for the sinners, for the spiritually sick, the divine doctor draws nears. To call them to repentance. What does Christ do when he draws near to sinners? This is the fundamental misunderstanding of the Pharisees. Christ is not there to applaud there in their sin, to ignore their sin, to excuse their sin, or to leave them in their sin. Christ is there to call them from their sin, to cure them and to cleanse them. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we see Jesus fulfills his ministry on the earth, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and he himself substitutes, dies on the cross on our behalf, and pays the price, the penalty for our sins. So we would do well when we look to Jesus and walk in obedience. Leave behind your sinful lives and your sinful deeds, and I will make you whole, and I will make you well. Turn from your sins and put your faith in me and be saved. Christ has not, not met these tax collectors and sinners to leave, leave them in their sin, but to call them from it. And that is the point of Matthew's story about him and his friends. Matthew's story is not of a good man who Jesus rewarded, but of a bad man who Christ saved. Jesus came, friends, to show grace for Matthew for the tax collectors and the Pharisees and for me and you. When Jesus called Matthew from the tax office, Matthew was dead in his trespasses and sins. He saw him in all his spiritual sickness and he was compassionate. So Jesus in conclusion says, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He makes it very clear for whom he came for and whom did he, and who he did not come for. He came for the sinner. Who are the sick, right? In the uh, early, uh, earlier analogy, but as we just talked about, Hosea makes it clear. He came for the sinner with a merciful and contrite heart. In other words, those who know they are sick with sin, those who are willing to go to the great physician and say, I desperately need you. Lord, I am sick. I am wicked. And they are confessing their sins. And he also made clear that who he is not calling. He's, he does not come for the one who thinks that they have it all together. The self-proclaimed righteous man. That is who Jesus is talking about here when he says righteous. Friends, just this past week, I was sick. And I clearly don't like to go to the doctor. Maybe some of you men can relate to that. I must really get bad before I go and get it checked out. 
It's not that I know I am a little sick. I just don't think I need help. I think it's not a big deal. It's not something I can get through on. It, it, it is not something I can't get through on my own. When I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about my attitude this past week. It is not just considering the sickness is not that bad. It is also considering that the doctor is not very important. I'm essentially saying I'm sick, but I don't need help from someone who wears a white coat, maybe. I will deal with it myself. Thank you. In the same way, when we don't think of ourselves as sinners in need of a savior, we tell Jesus the same thing. I don't need help from you. And here is the deal. We are all sinners. Our sin has stained us and has created a separation from a holy God. But if you have recognized your sin, please don't hold on to it. Even as you prepare to partake in this bread and cup that has been set before us, in which we will partake in a moment, think of his steadfast love, his mercy, and repent of your sin by his perfect life and death on the cross. But if you, if you don't admit your need, then you will have to pay the price for yourself. Jesus came to live on this earth, the perfect life that we could not, so when we stumble and fall into sin, it would be right to acknowledge and seek his help. He is once more ready to pay for our sins. In fact, he has already paid for the sins that you have repented to on the cross, that you have not repented to on the cross. Our past, present, and future sins were paid on the cross, and he did that willingly. Friends, do you see the beauty here? Imagine a doctor who has died in the place of a patient, who took his terminal sickness so that we who are inherently sick would now live. That is what Jesus did. So friend, where do you fit in Matthew's story? Do you see yourself as a sinner by nature and by deed? You're a man or a woman who perhaps has been careless or has even become hopeless and said, what would God want to do with me? Well, he would want to heal you, cleanse you, and he would want to make you his disciple. He would come to you where you are. He will come to you in all the darkness and in all sorrow and in all emptiness and in all the disobedience of your sin-wrecked life. And he will say, come to me, trusting in me. Christian brothers and sisters, this is what God has done for you. Do not lose sight. What were we when God found us? Where were we when God found us? Perhaps we were outwardly respectable, yet God came to us sinners and called us to follow him. Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. Are you now willing to follow Jesus in this way? Are you now an instrument of mercy to those who need mercy? Let us take warning from the Pharisees and do not go to God with a careless heart. Let us not make that mistake. That is what Matthew was for the rest of his life, a sinner saved by grace. It is the spirit in which he writes this gospel, which he weaves the whole story, the redemption plan of Christ, that Jesus came to save sinners. J.C. Ryle puts it in this way, and let me conclude with this quote. Sinners we are in the day we first came to Christ. Poor, needy sinners, we continue to be 
so long as we live. Drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners, we shall find ourselves in the hour of our death and shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. If you missed that, I'll repeat it again. Sinners we are in the day we first came to Christ. Poor, needy sinners we continue to be so long as we live, drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners we shall find ourselves in the hour of our death and shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. Amen. Let us come to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your amazing love that called us sinners out of darkness into your marvelous light. We praise you, Lord, that you have not counted us righteous, but you have counted us righteous in your Son, Jesus Christ. On our own strength, we are nothing but dust, but in Jesus, we are your children. So we praise you and we pray that, Lord, that you would give us a heart now to love you, obey you, and also be an instrument of mercy to others. May we also love others, pursue others, and live for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.